0: Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Chapel Messages podcast, a ministry of Emmaus Bible College. Each episode is taken from a chapel message given here at Emmaus. For more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. Good morning. Good to be with you for this chapel hour maybe hour and a half we'll <laughs> see how it goes our text is hebrews chapter 13 1 to 6 the author of hebrews conceives of the christian life as a pilgrimage and this concept forms the basis of john bunyan's immortal allegory Pilgrim's Progress, and in this allegory, which every Christian should read, there is a hero, his name is Christian, and there are others, and he leaves the world of destruction and heads on to the heavenly, the heavenly city. And as they're going, he and his friend are going on their way, they come to a city, city's name is Vanity. And in the city of Vanity, there is a fair that is a large gathering of people for the buying, the selling, the display of goods. And what they're buying and selling is not all that good. There are things in Vanity, at Vanity Fair, like brothels, gambling, drunkenness, greed, murder, and violence. A vanity fair, of course, is a picture of the present world under Satan. Uh, Satan's control, it's characterized by brutality, by immorality, and by consumerism. And the pilgrims are told as they go into the city of vanity that their clothing is different and their speech is different. Uh, What this means is that the Christian is to be different. He's to stand out, he's to be distinct from the man of the world. We're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and our outlook, our attitude, our aspirations, our behavior should be different. That's precisely the message of Hebrews chapter 13, verses one to six, and that's the big idea of today's message. The Christian lifestyle, the Christian's behavior should be different from that of Vanity Fair our lives should not be marked by the brutality, the immorality, the consumerism of our secular world. And so the author of Hebrews lays before us three imperatives for his own readers, but also for contemporary Christians. The imperative of brotherly love, the imperative of sexual purity, and the imperative of financial contentment. Let love of the brethren or love of the brothers continue. The dominant theme of Hebrews chapter 11 is love, just as the dominant theme of chapter 11 was faith and the dominant theme of chapter 12 was hope. This teaching on love reflects the teaching of the New Testament that all Christians are brothers and sisters In Christ. Earlier in the epistle, the author has taught that Christ suffered to make us sons of God, that is, members of the family of God. If our brotherhood derives from Christ, so also should our love derive from him, his infinite love for us. It should be the stimulus, it should be the source of love. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. And such brotherly love is not a mere sentimental thing. It can be very costly. As the Apostle John emphasizes, we know love by this that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? This verse, verse 1, is a command. This would suggest that perhaps the pilgrims were not only flagging in their zeal for their journey, but also in their ardor of their love for each other. In fact, one of these things led to the other. A weakening in their faith had led to a weakening in the bonds that joined them to their their fellow Christians. Christians. A lack of love for fellow Christians is invariably a sign that we're growing cold in our love for Christ. I'm struck by the uh, comment of that great philosopher, Lucy, in Peanuts. She said, I love mankind, it's people I hate. Now in verses two and three, the author makes two specific applications of verse one. He speaks of the imperative of brotherly love with respect to hospitality, and the imperative of brotherly love with respect to compassion. And so unlike the violence and the brutality of vanity fair, the fellowship of Christians is to be be marked by love. The term hospitality in the uh, text I'm reading is a Greek word that literally means the love of strangers. As Christians, of course, our most important concern is the teaching of the New Testament, and here we find repeated commands to engage in hospitality. Mrs. Carl Henry, the wife of the uh, famous a theologian, said this, Christian hospitality is not a matter of choice, it's not a matter of money, it's not a matter of age, social standing, sex or personality, it's a matter of obedience to God. In the New Testament, hospitality is one of the qualifications for a man who would carry out pastoral work in the local church, an elder. Uh, In the early church, there were men and women who were willing to travel from country to country actually as itinerant teachers and evangelists and meetings were held in homes and it was expected that these people would be cared for by the local Christians. It was also to be shown to the needy. The Lord Jesus flatly states that we are to invite a needy brother into our home Uh, when we Uh, When this epistle was written, there were many needy believers uh, because of the persecution that was raging around them. Unlike today, there were no holiday inns, no Ramada inns. Uh, In the ancient world, the inns were filthy, notoriously expensive, and had low moral reputation. There's some significance to the fact that Josephus the Jewish historian preserves the tradition that Rahab the harlot was an innkeeper. There are benefits to hospitality. It gives everyone a chance to serve. It helps advance the gospel. The founder of the Navigators, Dawson Trotman, says that he and his wife led servicemen from every state of the Union to Christ in their living room. It promotes brotherly love. There was a reporter from the Los Angeles Times who visited Christian churches to see how friendly and loving they were, and he gave them a rating, a point system. Here's how it went. Greeters at the door got two points. A non-threatening introduction got uh, three points. A coffee break with donuts got five points but a personal invitation to dinner got 60 points. In other words, can programs, friendship techniques can't take the place of, of hospitality. We often hear people say, I don't know anyone in that church, can't make any friends, I'm going somewhere else. Uh, Alexander Strauch, my good friend, tells of a couple uh, in his home assembly, young couple, new couple, and uh, they were having trouble meeting people, and so they decided that they were going to invite every single couple over the course of the next couple of years to their home. And they did, and they formed many close friendships. There'll be rewards for all service done for Jesus at the judgment seat, but there are also rewards in this life. Notice, some people entertain angels unaware, without knowing it, and this reference, most commentators agree, is probably to Abraham. You remember in the Old Testament, strangers, three strangers came, they were unknown to him, angels of God, in fact, one of the angels was called Yahweh, that is, he was the, the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. The rabbis have a story, there's a story in the uh, Talmud, Of a certain distinguished rabbi, uh, the bridegroom's father, who was pouring wine for the guests. And some of the people there thought it was unbecoming, unfitting that such an honored man should be uh, waiting on people. Someone else said, Well, you know, Abraham was greater, and he waited, he waited upon others. Someone else said, Yeah, but they were angels. And this person said, well, no, I understand they were Arabs. Well, if Abraham, the father of Judaism, could wait on Arabs, we ought to wait on one another, I think was the point. There's something interesting about this word angel. It really means a messenger. Most of us will never be visited by an angel. But many people will come to our homes or visit with us who will be messengers of God. My parents were uh, very hospitable. As I was growing up, there was a stream of uh, visiting preachers and missionaries, traveling Christians who stayed or ate at our home. And as a young Christian, I profited greatly. On occasion, there might be some very well-known, very learned uh, preacher or missionary. And I was edified Uh, by them. They were were certainly God's messengers to me. Also with reference to compassion in verse 3, remember the prisoners. Strangers and visitors are obvious, but there are Christians in need who are not so obvious. Uh, Even today in various parts of the world, there are Christians in jail because of their faith. Uh, There are Christians uh, that are visited by believers with Emmaus correspondence courses. Sometimes they're not believers, many times they become believers, but they're there in jail, they're all alone. Uh, Sometimes uh, the elderly need to be visited. Uh, One uh, elderly lady had had, uh, reported this to a visitor. She said, I'm still terribly lonely She was 81 years old. The club closes at 4.30, and there's nothing but long empty hours until bedtime. I've heard so many old people say, there's nothing for us now. You've got to eat to sort of keep alive, but there's nothing. The time is so long, the evenings, the weekends. I've heard several people say, I don't care how soon the end comes for me. I know lots of people, but that isn't the same as having a close friend people need to be visited. It's an act of uh, compassion to do so. He says, since you yourselves are in the body, in other words, you're human beings, you're bodily creatures, you should understand these things. The imperative of sexual or marital purity. There's some difference of opinion on the translation of verse four, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. The authorized version, the King James Version, translates the verse uh, as an indicative marriage is honorable among all. And this has led some interpreters to assume that the verse is really a direct, a direct, directed against those who have ascetic views. That is, they they uh, view sex as something uh, to be deprecated or despised. And of course, ascetic views did arise in the early church. They exist today in uh, the priesthood of uh, the very large, largest denomination of the world. Uh, it's an ascetic idea, somehow viewing the a physical body and the pleasures of the body as uh, corrupt. I don't think, however, while that's a good thing to say uh, that uh, asceticism is bad, I don't think that's the point here. I think what this verse is uh, teaching is that marriage is dishonored by impurity. Uh, The immediate context contains these uh, exhortations, and and that's what we have here. The text tells us that we're to consider marriage an honorable thing, highly valued, costly, precious. Men and women together are the image of God. Just as God made covenants with mankind, so marriage is a covenant, a bond between a man and a woman. That marriage bond is foundational to all human relationships. In the New Testament, the marriage bond is a picture of the relationship of Christ to his church. In marriage, the two become one flesh. There's a uniting of two people. We become one flesh spiritually by vow, economically by by sharing, disbursement of our resources, experientially by trudging through the dark valleys and standing uh, victoriously on the mountain peaks, and bonded sexually, the bonding of our our bodies. Sexual intercourse was created uniquely and solely for marriage to express this oneness uh, between two people. Fellow Christian pilgrims, you and I are journeying today through vanity fair. Modern secular culture doesn't believe anything that I have just said for the last 20 minutes. Our age has asserted that a sex has no necessary relationship to marriage whatsoever. Doesn't even have a necessary relationship between boys and girls. Marital fidelity is not cherished. Dr. Albert Ellis, a sexologist, urges couples to practice healthy adultery. That's his actual expression. Some time ago, Eva Bacador told of a discussion among modern wives who were sort of confessing their adulteries to one another, and one person was very, very embarrassed that she had never committed adultery. The danger of this poisonous atmosphere of Vanity Fair uh, is that the Christian can become infected with with this moral sickness. As we walk through Vanity Fair, books, magazines, billboards, TV, movies, online, online uh, sexual uh, scenes, pornography, uh, challenge the Christian message. Get all the sex you can, all kinds, anytime, with anyone. You only go around once. Get all the gusto you can. Don't miss out. There is no tomorrow. Oh yeah, there is a tomorrow. And the writer says here, fornicators and adulterers, God will will judge. It's all a lie. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. The word bed here in classical Greek and in the first century was a euphemism for sexual intercourse, just as today we talk about going to bed. How is the marriage bed to be kept undefiled? Look at these two terms. Adulterers. Adultery is sexual infidelity by either party in a marriage. The marriage bed has room for just two. It's defiled by the intrusion of a third party. And this, this warning is directed against both partners in a marriage. It's directed at you as you contemplate marriage, as you some of you are in marriage. And it's a warning to any third person who would seek to intrude sexually into that marriage. And fornicators. Fornication, the English word is often understood to mean premarital, premarital sex. Actually, uh, the Greek word uh, originated with the word prostitution. And it came to mean a broad meaning of every unlawful kind of sexual intercourse. It includes premarital sex, yes virginity, purity, are to be guarded. What a gift to give to the one you decide to marry. Don't bring ghosts, the ghosts of premarital sex, to your marriage. It includes sodomy, male homosexuality, lesbianism, pedophilia, and it includes incest, the terrible, unmentionable sin which has defiled too many homes, more common than you may think. Our text says, God will judge. There's a time coming, a future time, when men and women will answer for their sins. Actually, the book of Romans in Romans chapter one tells us that people answer for their sins in this life. God actually gives them over to their sins, those kinds of sins, sexual sin. In this life, we have uncontrollable sexual transmitted diseases. Some of the very old diseases are now coming back, uh, needing even more powerful antibiotics and AIDS, God's judgment is seen in these things, the spiritual, physical, emotional, psychological wreckage of people. There's a terrible cost, broken marriages, disintegrated families, and the children. Does anyone think of the children in these families and how they are affected by these sins? When children come from a broken home, says Lewis Evans, they come off the assembly line with important parts missing. They lack the drive of motivation. Some lack a clear sense of identity. Others have no moral guidance system whatever, and they careen through life out of control. The imperative of financial contentment. This is the third imperative for Christian pilgrims in verses five and six. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what can man do to me? Here's the last of Vanity Fair's illusions, that true happiness and contentment is found in money and possessions. And if you read popular magazines and see the fabulous mansions and lifestyles of wealthy people, you might believe the lie. Jesus said you cannot serve God and money. He counseled not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. It's interesting that the only person that Jesus ever called a fool in the Gospels was the rich man in Luke chapter 16. The expression free from the love of money occurs in one other place in 1 Timothy chapter three where it is a qualification for someone who would have the office of an elder in the church. Free from the love of money, our age, has a driving hunger for acquisition. Our wants become needs. Calvin observed that a craving for affluence is never satisfied. There was a great millionaire named Bernard Baruch. You could, uh, you could put anyone else's name in there, put Bill Gates's name in there. But Mr. Baruch was asked, how much money does it take for a rich man like you to be satisfied? And he said, 1 million more, never satisfied. I was walking through Chicago's O'Hare airport, which I visit from time to time. And there was this large poster, money does grow on trees. And down at the bottom, the Illinois state lottery. People today spend more money on gambling than they do on higher education. Fifteen times more than they, than they put in the offering plate at their, local, at their local church. Money. Some years ago, a father was in his study and a knock came to the door. Who is it? It's me, Ed. Can I talk to you, Dad? Come on in, Ed. Ed enters, entered his father's study, sat down, and after some... Uh, conversation. He said, Dad, I, I've decided to drop out of law school because the Lord has shown me he wants me on the mission field. His father said, well, let's, let's pray about that. And there on their knees, the father commended his son to God and to the word of his grace. The father was Dr. T.E. McCulley. His son, Ed, went to Ecuador with his friends, Jim Elliott and Peter Fleming and Nate Saint and Roger Udarian. And not long afterwards, they laid down their lives on the shores of the Carari River, martyred by Alca Indians. Dr. McCulley would tell this story uh, on numerous occasions. And when he did, he would say this, how glad I am today that I didn't say a word to discourage or hinder Ed when he told me of his call to the mission field. The New Testament tells us to work, to provide for the needs of our families, to give to the work of the Lord, but money should not be our God. And then finally, true contentment is found in God's abiding presence. And these are quotations from Deuteronomy, and the book of Psalms. This is the source of true contentment. I will never desert you nor will I forsake you so that we confidently say the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? We believe in the providential goodness of God. He will give us what is good for us. We need to work hard we need to be generous with our possessions and leave the rest to God. And during our pilgrim journey, we have his promise. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. The soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Well, my time is up, but let me just make one comment in closing. There are three words in our passage with the Greek word, love. There's love of the brethren, there's love of strangers, and there's love of money. The old Bible teacher, William R. Newell, once made this helpful observation. He said, ample doses of the first two, love of the brethren, love of strangers, will keep you from the third the love of money. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the reality of the word of God and the illusions that it confronts. We know, Lord, that we do live in this world. There is a God over this world, that is the devil. And there are many, many illusions that would distract us, that would lead us away from what is true and what is good. Help us to be encouraged by the words of the writer of Hebrews. Help us to be receptive to these imperatives that he lays before us. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Chapel Messages podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit Emmaus.edu slash